are recording. Yes, we are. Yeah, welcome to the Irrational Discourse Podcast, the continuation of our existential risks episodes. And today we are going to cover climate change. Yeah, let's hype it up, folks, talking about the planet. <laughs> yeah. I'm Doug Sherman, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris. Yo, yo. And we still have Josh with Hello us. Hello there. All hey, buddy. Right. Welcome to the show. Good to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, you you did our a brilliant job in our Q&A session, so we drug you in for our climate change session. I think unless we've been sleeping under a rock for most of the last three decades, everybody's heard about climate change, global warming, the environment. Definitely. There is a lot to unpack with all of that. Yeah. You remember that? Remember that movie, An Inconvenient Truth that came out? I did not see it. Okay, but you remember it. Yes. I didn't see it either, but I remember it. There's been so many movies that come out. Unfortunately, I think some movies have been counterproductive even when they've one example the day after tomorrow mm-hmm. i don't know if you saw that with quaid it almost took things to the point to where it was silly uh-huh and i think it, it i think it simplified the the it allowed people to easily disengage from the topic as yeah you know being a bit silly and they they, they yeah, desensitized themselves to it or something yeah yeah i mean you know if you're trying to be force-fed a political ideology or a social ideology and the method to do so is a bit on the silly side, your mind tends to reject the information that you're receiving. Yeah, well, this isn't a spoonful. This is like a fork and knife full. We want to get away from the day after tomorrow type of scenarios and really just get down to the science of what is climate change? What is global warming? Yeah. How are the two associated? Is it real? Is it, you know, is man contributing to the effects of global warming or is it purely natural? Okay. And what kind of risk that would mean to our Hmm. continuance as a civilization? Hmm. Okay, let's dive in. Yep. I think the first thing that we need to understand is what a greenhouse gas is. Okay. We hear a lot about greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And a greenhouse gas, simple enough, is... Any gas that exists in the atmosphere and is capable of absorbing infrared radiation, which means that it would trap the heat within the Earth's atmosphere. And we have several different types of greenhouse gases that exist. Okay, like what are they? And many of them are beneficial. Okay. The most abundant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is actually water vapor. It's water. It's okay. Yeah, water vapor. So when we feel a lot of humidity, yeah, that's water vapor in the atmosphere. Yeah. It yeah, holds the heat. It, you can see it on a humid day. You know, it's a little kind of hazy. Yeah, you get the little ripples and heat off the roads and as... Oh, yeah, the little kind of mirages. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Or, you know, the water is a natural greenhouse gas. Carbon dioxide is the one that is most often discussed in the topics of climate change and global warming. Yeah, also known as CO2. Correct. Which, yeah. don't plants breathe it in? Yes, plants um, will inhale, breathe in carbon dioxide, and exhale oxygen, and we do the opposite. So we have a symbiotic relationship with, with plants. So we breathe in their waste, and yeah. they breathe in our waste. Does that make you yeah. want to stop breathing now? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I want to eat your poo. <laughs> there's also a little bit of <laughs> there's there's a you know there's a little bit of misunderstanding when we talk about global warming and climate change because some people use those terms interchangeably. 
hmm. and they are not the same. They're not the same. Well, what's the difference? So I started with so. Ah, yeah, that thing again. That thing. <laughs> Darn it. All right, guys, we got to scold him now. Global warming is what occurs when we end up with an excess amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. If you want to think about how a greenhouse gas works, works you think of a, a fireplace brick or clay bricks. Yeah. And essentially, those get heated up, and then when the heat source is removed, they slowly um, radiate that the heat they yeah. absorbed over an extended period of time. Yeah, it doesn't just go away instantly. It lingers around a bit. And that's what a greenhouse gas does. So global warming, so again, so again. <laughs> you got to scold you. I got, yes, start scolding me. I need, to have a, I need to have a so jar. That How was, dare you? That was a school moment for me right there. Like all of a sudden it kind of just clicked. It was like, wait a second. Okay, so the greenhouse gases operate like that brick you just described. That's exactly how they work. They just they linger around the heat a little bit. So as long so if you can just let them have a chance to cool off a bit. They they cool yeah. They cool then they off. cool off and they stay cooled yeah. until they absorb more heat. Yeah, I see. So wow. people stop using fossil fuels and all, fuels and all <laughs> and well <laughs> yeah, end of, ahead of ourselves. Which, yeah, yeah, end of the episode. Thank yeah. you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Just stop. I had a customer up in. We're working uh, on it. I had a customer in Minnesota, and that was their application. Is they had electricity in their area was more expensive at night than in the daytime. So they had peak hours and off peak hours. Hmm. Their application was an oven. That was basically contained quite a few of these bricks. Yeah. And in the daytime, it would apply heat to these bricks and heat them up. And then in the nighttime, the power would shut off and the bricks would slowly radiate heat throughout the house and keep the house warm overnight. Of course. And then that cycle would repeat in the day. That's cool. So yeah, that's the exact function of a greenhouse gas. Yeah. And carbon dioxide holds heat for a very long period of time. Mm, like how long? I don't know the by molecule by. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's longer than, say, example, methane. Methane, you know, we'll cover this, but methane is a more potent greenhouse uh, gas. It will absorb and re-radiate twenty-eight times the amount of heat that carbon does. Like, so that carbon times, dioxide. Twenty-eight times longer. So basically, they'll rate gases on what they call. GWP. It's that's that stands for global warming potential. Oh, okay. And methane has a GWP twenty eight times that of carbon dioxide. Okay. However, methane is also emitted by man in much smaller volumes well, than carbon for, dioxide. Okay, so carbon dioxide. But what does it have with um, oxygen or? Uh, didn't you just say oxygen was a greater greenhouse gas? No, water. Water water, water okay, vapor no, is. Water vapor, sorry. Yeah, sorry. yeah. Water vapor. So water water vapor is a little bit, and this is one of the problems that we have as a society in readily accepting global warming and climate change. It's an exceptionally complex topic. Yeah. It's not simple, straightforward, easy to understand. One of the challenges that I've discussed before in the past is science. Scientists are not the best communicators, typically. Sure. They like to speak in very matter-of-fact terms using empirical data that sometimes is a bit overwhelming for the audience. Eyes roll back in the head, people's heads explode, yeah, and that's the end of it. I like to think like our role kind of facilitates from the science perspective to kind of more of the 
general population, the layman, you know, mm-hmm. us normies, you know, right? You know, we can kind of understand what they're saying, and we can speak to people to using words. Yeah. <laughs> but that was kind of my thought when going into this episode is... I found myself going down dozens of rabbit holes into the details of the science. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I decided that that was probably counterproductive for exactly the point that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more technical you tend to get and go beyond using layman's terms, yeah, the less interest you garner from the audience that you're communicating oh, sure. to. Well, this is the thing. we got to check for understanding often, mm-hmm. you know, when you're speaking to people like in general and stuff, because you could catch yourself going into a run-on sentence and you might be saying you know the equation for god and how he exists and it's is real or she exists or whatever but you know you lost your audience and it's falling on deaf ears because they're not paying attention correct there's ways to like keep keep it checked and keep it going and it goes back to what i said earlier on do you want to influence or do you want to be right Mm. because you can be right all day long and still lose the battle Sure, sure. You, yeah. you, want, you want to be able to communicate in a manner that easily conveys the message. I think the message that I primarily was targeting here is that the climate change and the global warming we're experiencing today, man is definitely influencing what we are seeing from the levels today of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Oh, you showed me some graphs and stuff, too, because I'm a real visual person. Um, you know, uh, I can... He- hear really well too and pick up concepts too but if you can show me a visual it's just wow like right there and I, we've I, got some graphs are they going to be on, on the, the website, website? they're right? on the website yeah. there there's a page dedicated to yeah, the global warming section you're awesome man and that will provide the yeah the visual uh, yeah of some of the stuff we're demonstration talking about. of exactly what we're talking about today because i can sit here and go through numbers all day long and it doesn't mean anything and then you see it in a graph and it clearly depicts how our contribution to global warming significantly exceeds that of the natural Earth cycle yeah, and today. We're, we're going to get you wrapped into this uh, two ladies, uh, you know, man and women. You know, we're in this together. Sorry. Human. <laughs> human. Let's say yeah. human. There's my gender bias we coming you, out. We, I apologize. No, no. We need you now, ladies. Uh, so um, <clears throat> take some of the blame with us. I started. I didn't finish the topic on the difference between global warming and climate change. Right. Yeah. Global warming is what happens when you end up with an excess amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that creates an abnormal warming condition for the planet. As a result of global warming, you experience climate change. Hmm. So climate change is a ramification of global warming. Okay. They are two different things. You treat climate change by... Climate change is a symptom of the cause, which is global warming. Okay. If that is a more simple way to put it. That is, yeah. Yeah, saying things in other words definitely helps. Yeah, to, gotcha. to get into the complexity of, of global warming, there's something called the Earth's albedo. Now, that's not the Earth's libido. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I was totally going to make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the Earth's libido level is, but the Earth's albedo is essentially the reflectivity of the Earth's surface. Okay, so reflecting light. Or solar energy. Solar energy. Yeah, yeah, the sun emits energy. That energy penetrates our atmosphere. It hits the Earth. Today, the Earth's albedo is around 30%. What that means is that around 70% of the solar energy that reaches the Earth 
is absorbed by the surface of the Earth. Okay. 30% is reflected back out into space. Okay. It's not even absorbed. It's totally reflected. It's totally reflected back out in space. The, the amount of energy that hits our surface is about 1.2 kilowatt hours. If you, if you want to give a visual perspective of that, if you had 12 100-watt bulbs and you put them in a one square meter area, there would be enough energy from the sun to light those bulbs for an hour. Okay. That's how much solar energy hits the earth and reflects, or that's how much energy hits the earth in a one square meter area. Gotcha. Now, now around around 30% of that is reflected back out into space. Okay. And we're just, just to clarify too, that one square meter area is just a small core sample. So it's doing it in that one square meter, but on every meter that it actually hits. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Every square meter that it hits. Yeah. So, uh, so it's that number, but then multiplied by however meters it's actually hitting. That 70% of the surface and the of the surface, which includes land masses and oceans, yeah. that absorbs the energy, that energy heats up and then slowly radiates back out into the atmosphere. And the greenhouse gases trap some percentage of that heat. In. And that's what they radiate back down into Earth. Again. Again. Yeah. Well, they radiate, it radiates in all directions, slowly. Yeah. It's the fireplace brick. Gotcha. Yeah. So... so. of the Earth's surface absorbs solar energy. It gets hot. That heat slowly radiates back out in the atmosphere as infrared radiation. The greenhouse gases acting as a fireplace brick absorb that heat, and then they hold it for a long period of time and slowly radiate it out in all directions. Even when the sun is no longer there. Even when the sun is no longer there. Yeah. A good example of that is the planet Venus. All of Venus's carbon dioxide is in its atmosphere. The temperature on the night side of Venus is the same as the temperature on the sun-facing side of Venus, around 875 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Because of the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has absorbed the heat from the day, and it just radiates it back out over the night. So the temperature on the dark side is the same as the temperature on the light side. Wow. Greenhouse gases, though, are an important part of Earth's natural cycle. So without... Greenhouse gases, the average temperature on Earth would be around zero degrees. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it, Fahrenheit? Zero degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we need greenhouse gases. To, and today, we, we have an average temperature of around 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So we need some amount of greenhouse gases. There have been greenhouse gases in the atmosphere for hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. And they've allowed the planet to stay warm in some areas, in some eras, a lot warmer than other areas. But... You know, today we're at 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. That's around 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than in 1850. Oh, my. So it is increasing. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but is it? It is a lot. It doesn't take much. And we can look at, if we just stick on the category of... I mean, because ice freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So 32 degrees, and you said it's 56 degrees on average? It's 59 right now. 59 on average across the whole planet, North Pole, South Pole, everywhere. doesn't matter if it's winter or summer. Average of 59 degrees. By when I say it doesn't take much, we can consider... So the Paleocene, Eocene thermal maximum, which occurred 56 million years ago. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, that was when it was the most significant contributor to carbon dioxide. It was the warmest temperatures on the planet in the last 66 million years. Okay. Is what it boils down to. The average temperature on the planet then was 14 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than today. 
14 degrees. Yeah, so that doesn't sound like much. No, it doesn't, but when you kind of compare that to 3.6 degrees, yeah, almost it's, 4. Yeah, which isn't, that. it's a 10 degree difference Fahrenheit, which is less than the difference between day and night in most regions in the United States. And so it was 13 degrees on average higher when it was the hottest the planet has ever been. Oh, in 66 million years. That's incredible. It was that 14 degree difference was enough to where we lived in an era. We didn't live in an era. The planet was in an era 56 million years ago where there were no polar ice caps. Holy crap. All the water in the world was liquid. Sea levels were around 230 feet higher than they are today. And they have found fossilized remains of alligators in Greenland. You know, this is amazing because I travel a lot for my work uh, and I drive. And so I get to see geography, the ge- geological, you know, formations and stuff, all the different land masses. And uh, I'm always wondering too much. You can clearly see this. At one point, this was all underwater. And you can like kind of see the history of it all, you know, through different like plateaus and stuff. And just to hear that is like, oh, yeah, no, that, that I mean, just just look outside, guys. <laughs> you can see it. <laughs> at one point, this is true. It was true. Yeah, and, it was true. Yeah, past tense. Yeah, and I, it it is coming. Whoops! The, the truth is coming again uh, with the with the rate that we are on today, and and this is the concern that we have with regards to global warming: is what is man contributing? How are we impacting the earth, the natural cycle of Earth, in in generating greenhouse gases and putting them into the atmosphere? You guys, I do believe that we can solve this, that we can endure and survive and even live beyond this um but let's 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 get to this information so we can understand what the problem really is um to kind of point to the factor or to to point to the evidence that supports that man is contributing to greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere we only need to look at three key metrics the first of those is the global population. Okay. How has yeah. the go- global population changed in, say, the last two to 300 years? Okay. The second is what is our fuel, fossil fuel consumption over that period of time? Oh, yeah. And how does that track the increase of population? And the third is what is the greenhouse gases or primarily the carbon dioxide levels of the atmosphere during that same period of time? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, this is kind of our dancing around the Industrial Revolution uh, is what comes to mind. And so we've got some information on what was going on around those times. We got some data. Um, Well, we have data that goes back millions and millions of years. Uh, We also have ice core samples. So we have air samples over the last 800,000 years. And they get that from ice cores. Basically, they dig down. They know how deep the layer is. There's air bubbles that are trapped in in ice. And they can analyze the air bubbles in ice that dates back to 800,000 years. And we know exactly what the CO2 level was throughout our history in that level, in that period of time. That's incredible. Even to think to capture the air, like, and analyze it like that. Yeah, in Jurassic Park, they got dinosaur dna from mosquitoes no true. <laughs> no i true between eight hundred thousand years ago and 1850 so let's just take that period of time the atmospheric co2 levels varied between 180 parts per million and 300 parts per million and just to like be clear this is pretty much from the beginning of time as we know it to 1850 
pretty much the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, about a decade at the end, or right around the end of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, so this that that's where this information is talking and it, about. And it, it's very cyclical. It it would it would cycle down for seventy five thousand years, and then slowly cycle back up again, and then back down. And you know, the Earth's process isn't perfectly linear. It's you know, it oscillates between the two, but it creates a stable trend. Yeah, that trend was 180 at its minimum parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Okay, and 300 parts per million at its peak in 1850. Okay, so is there a way we can kind of the parts per million and stuff like how could we give it do we have like a visual representation that we can kind of articulate like what that looks like i mean it's just like a speck inside of a balloon well if you take a million particles in the atmosphere yeah and 180 of them are carbon dioxide yeah then if, of 100 and of all the molecules you know 180 of the million yeah then you have 180 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. So that's where the percentages come from. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's how they measure atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations. Okay. At the end of 1850, at the end of the Industrial Revolution, CO2 levels were at 283 parts per million. So slightly below the maximum that we saw over the previous 300,000 or 800,000 years. Yeah. And again, folks, we got the uh, we got we got graphs of this uh, information. Yeah, on the website. Yeah, so you can keep track of it. Today, the atmospheric carbon dioxide level is 418 parts per million. That is an increase of 135 parts per million in less than two centuries, in about 170 years. Whoa! And that is the fastest rate of change of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the past 66 million years. I mean, so that's evidence right there, you know. Our population in 1850 was 1.2 billion. Our population today is 8 billion, or will be 8 billion by the end of the year. Yeah. Well, it's not just it's not just the population, but it's it's what comes with the population too. It's what comes with the population, and it's also what comes with technology. So, in the early 19th century, traditional biomass sources sources for fuel, which was primarily wood, mm -hmm. was what we consumed. Yeah, we're just burning, you know, house fires, and we didn't have coal or any of these more advanced things, just basic. Now, wood does release CO2 into the atmosphere, so our population, by burning wood, did influence, and that's why forest fires have a negative, negative impact on uh, atmospheric CO2 levels. Yeah. But it's relatively minor compared to coal. Yeah. Coal is the heaviest contributor to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The heaviest. At the end of the Industrial Revolution, coal started to replace wood because it is far more efficient as a source of fuel yeah, it's like than wood. wood. Yeah, it's wood compressed and super duper. So the rail industry, the steel industry, all of the manufacturing industry converted from traditional biomass source fuel sources to coal Yeah, and started to burn more coal. Towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, oil kicked in. Now, these things are more efficient with energy, but they're also more efficient with the waste. They're generating more carbon dioxide, yes. And the scary thing is, is as coal started to be used, the traditional biomass consumption did not go down. It continued. It, it continued at its same rate. So it's already going at one rate, but then now it has more. Essentially, what happened is people just started burning, using more energy. And it's because technology at the same time. You had the you had the steam engine, and you had the railroads, and then at the you know nineteenth or turn into the nineteenth century, turn of the twentieth century, 
the automobile industry took off and started burning more fossil fuels. So then you had oil consumption that increased. Coal consumption kept increasing at the same amount. Yeah, and then everybody had to have a car. And it just and then you had air conditioning. Yeah. That you know, the invent and, and every house had an air conditioning system in it. Lighting in everyone's houses and then television. Yeah, all then, that electricity is coming from coal. Yeah. <laughs> coal, 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 all day long. Yeah, every time you flick on the light switch, you're burning some coal, but you're also polluting the planet. Yeah. Woohoo, kill the planet, right? I mentioned the <laughs> I mentioned the Paleocene Eocene thermal maximum which occurred 56 million years ago. Yeah, god, that's such a cool term too. <laughs> the, yeah, it's also called the PETM, which isn't as fun to say as mm. Paleocene Eocene. No, you have to say it the full way every time. Yeah. It was the hottest temperature of the planet in 66 million years. We're still not sure of the cause of it, but we do know that at that time it was an additional release of 1.1 gigaton, 1.1 gigatons. So 1.1 billion tons of carbon dioxide was emitted into the atmosphere every year. That is a at lot. that time. At that time. My God. How do you release that? What were much? they doing? So here's the interesting thing: 1.1 billion tons per year. Today, humans are responsible for 40 to 45 billion tons of what? carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere every year. That is insane. Carbon dioxide is 79% of all total human greenhouse gas emissions each year. If we look at the total amount of carbon dioxide humans have released since 1750, 40% of that has come in the last 40 years. Wow. So uh, over 270 years of human-contributed greenhouse gas carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, 40%. So getting close to half is just in the last 40 years alone. When you guys, when you, when you go on the website, irrationaldiscourse.com, and you see the, the graphs that we've got <clears throat> provided that come from other sources, you can see it, it makes a curve. I mean, it's like an exponential curve, which means it starts small and then it just shoots right up. Yeah, it goes up because of the population rising a lot. The population goes exponentially in in like in stereo For with like, the the consu- the consumption like in tandem. It's it's simultaneous. One billion to eight billion in just like a hundred years. Because it's not just the amount of people, but it's it's what comes with people too. You know, like our our modern sensibilities. You know, we we need electricity and. You know, we need a car and we need all of, we've come to function to think that we need all these things anyway. And because there's, that that's that's sustainable to a certain point if you have a population like how it was back in the 50s. But now that there's so many of us and we all have these deep functioning needs, something's got to give. I mean, what, give me some more data here. To your point about population, I'll give you some data to support that as we increase in the potential. So let's look at India. Okay. India has a population of 1 billion. Okay. Three times that of the United States. Okay. Only, I'm going to get the numbers backwards, only 13% of the population of India have access to air conditioning. Wow. Only 7% of the population of India owns a motor vehicle. Wow. That is rapidly changing. Interesting. As technology and the country adapts and becomes more 
self-dependent and the class culture start India is very class divided. You tend to have very rich, very poor, nothing in between uh-huh. as that starts to diminish and more people have access to vehicles and to air conditioning. They are going to start emitting significantly amount more of, of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere right? because they're going to be burning more gasoline in their vehicles. And a lot of the energy in India and China is provided by coal. Mm-hmm. And coal is still the least expensive way to generate energy. Wow. And China has over 1 billion people in population, too. China has 1.3 billion. Now, they have a higher percent of the population that have access to things like air conditioning and automobiles. But they also are the world's largest contributor of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And they still rely heavily on coal because it's a cheap source of energy. It's the easiest way for using. It is the easiest and the least expensive way. Yeah. It's so crazy, too, because when you actually drive by a, like, coal power plant, it's just, it takes you right there to 1850. Like, they're, they're just so archaic by today's standards, you know, but today's standards are all running off of that archaic system and... There's just got to be a better way. I mentioned that humans are responsible for 40 to 45 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions every year. And I should say, I know there's a better way. And there's a lot of arguments, not arguments, there's a lot of conversations I've had with people who will make the comment that volcanoes also emit carbon dioxide and that there's there's natural sources of carbon dioxide being released into our atmosphere by Earth. And that's, that's true. Yeah. We emit 40 to 45 billion tons. The natural level of carbon dioxide emissions every year is around 29 billion tons. So it's still under what we do. It's still less than what we do. By almost half. The difference is when the earth was emitting 29 billion tons a year, it's got the source sink process. So there's sources of carbon dioxide and then there's sinks of carbon dioxide, things that absorb carbon dioxide. I've heard about this. Carbon sinks. Carbon sinks, like yeah. trees. Trees are the best carbon sinks that yeah. we have yeah, because they, they, as Josh mentioned, they breathe in the carbon dioxide. The ocean absorbs a significant amount of carbon dioxide. Yeah, the, they breathe it in and they essentially shoot it into the, the rocks, what into hu- the earth. What humans have done is upset that balance. Mm-hmm. It's too much. Way too much. There's other things, and this is where it gets really complex. I We talked about the Earth's albedo earlier. Okay. And as changes in the Earth's albedo create very complicated positive and negative feedback effects that are hard to model. And I'll give you an example. Ice and snow has an albedo of around 0.9, 0.8, 0.9, which means that it reflects 90% of the sun's solar energy. Okay. The Earth's oceans, which are much darker, only reflect around 10%. They oh, absorb yeah. 90% of the sun's energy, which means they heat up. Yeah. As the temperature of Earth's atmosphere warms up, the polar caps melt at a greater rate. Which means there's less reflectivity, which means the oceans absorb more water, which means they heat up faster, which means the ice melts at a greater rate, which reduces the reflectivity. Yeah, it has this feedback loop where it's just building. That's the negative feedback loop. The negative feedback loop. Yes. Yeah. As the oceans warm up, the ice melts faster. It reflects less energy, which means the oceans warm warm up faster. And you end up with this feedback effect. Yeah. The positive feedback effect that comes from that 
This causes the Earth, Earth's oceans get warmer, more water vapor ends up in the atmosphere. The more water vapor that gets in the atmosphere, as that condenses, you get more water formations and cloud cover. Clouds reflect more sun. Things cool down. So you end up with this positive feedback effect. Interesting. But that ratio is, is very hard to model today. Maybe the AGI can do it one day Maybe. for us. But yeah. you know, our simulations that we run today have some data, and that data grows every single year, which is why sometimes climate scientists come out and they contradict what was said by climatologists 20 years ago. Sure. And half the population starts crying, see, I told you it was all change no, the minds no. and it's they're just it's, working with what they got it's we know more today than we did 20 years ago and yeah. we're learning as we go yeah there's a difference between pulling and actually having some concrete data and even if the concrete data is wrong if you're still gaining that data and learning that's good you know it, it, it's it's different there's changes in local albedos for for example like in the forest when you def you know with deforestization Say you cut down 30% of a forest, you're going to significantly impact its albedo because that 30% that you cut down is now more reflective and reflects more solar energy than is absorbed. But you're also reducing a sink. The trees are no longer, that carbon you cut sinking. down, are no longer pulling the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So you end up with this, again, it's a complex it re relationship between the positive and negative feedback effects. It really is. The concern with the oceans, so the there's something called the thermal haline circulation. Another cool little concept word. It is a cool concept word. But the thermal haline circulation is what causes uh, the water of the Earth's oceans to circulate. Yeah, okay. You have temperature differentials where the water is up closer to the polar caps or colder than the waters down to the Arctic. So you have different water densities, which causes warm water to move for, um, north. The cold water sinks and then moves back to the south. When it does that, it also carries oxygen down to the countless trillions of microorganisms at the bottom of the ocean. And you have this process. But as the polar caps begin, continue to melt and that water becomes warmer, the thermal haline circulation pattern changes. slows down and it changes. You have less you have the the like less diversity almost yeah it's it's oh, also oh. carrying it's no longer carrying warm air warmer air north you end up with crazy weather patterns precipitation patterns change you end up with incredibly chaos uh, extensive droughts in some areas extreme rainfalls in other areas tornadoes typhoons hurricanes increase in strength it creates all kind of crazy weather weather patterns. Sure, and it's kind of some of what we'll, you know we've been seeing over the last twenty years. Yeah, no, oh, yeah, is with an increase in the intensity of storms and longer droughts and more wildfires. Yeah, it's weird. Like I noticed, so native to Tucson, Arizona, I, I do get to travel, but native to Tucson, so that's where a lot of my observations, you know, come from. But it seems like they would consistently get a monsoon season <clears throat> during monsoon seasons, and it would always get just like. A little bit later, like everybody was sort of freak out and like, holy crap, is this a drought? And get just like a few days later, a few days later, and then it would dump like the biggest rain dump ever. And it was like bigger and better than ever. And then it would get a little bit later and then bigger and better and then a little bit later and bigger and better. But like, when's it going to like flip on itself? You know what I mean? Like, does it keep going like that where it just keeps getting later and later? Or do eventually the poles reverse themselves and then next thing you know, you know, we've invented Thanos and he's got to go, you know, tell everybody about the population. 
I, no, I don't. I don't know. Um, but I've observed it the, the the crazy weather phenomenon just in my my local zones. Um, you know that I've existed in uh, just just like little shifts where it's like this isn't how it usually was. But then people would always tell me like, oh, it's El Nino or it's El Nina. But see, uh, yeah, El Ninas and El Ninos, uh, volcanic activity, the Earth's wobble and its orbit, all of those yeah. have an impact. Right. But what we have seen over the last 200 years, roughly, is an increase that exceeds what would have occurred with typical orbital pattern changes, El Nino, El Nina effects. Sure. Again, there's a lot of variables. It's very complex, like you said. There's, there's a lot going on. But one of those variables being human output of greenhouse gases. That is the primary variable, and that's, yeah. that's why I believe the charts have the biggest impact, because it just shows you the population increase with the radiant in- increase in terawatt consumption of fossil fuels the carbon emissions in the atmosphere mm-hmm. they track each other perfectly yeah they do i've, I've seen it i mean i've seen these, some of these graphs and it's just like oh yeah well you can't deny that so all of the all of the carbon dioxide i mean there's various different things that are responsible for carbon dioxide coal coal is almost 15 billion tons a year wow that we put into the atmosphere just from coal and so 15 billion tons out of the 56 45 say? 45 I mean, what's the percentage of that? That's like 30% of That's one third. It's 33%. Yeah. (laughs) Oil is 12.4 billion tons and and gas is 7.5 billion tons. That's a lot. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And the primary emitting sectors, electricity and heat production account for about 49, 50% of all the carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere. And then transportation is just under 21%. So between the two, it's just, it's around 70% of what we put into the atmosphere comes from those two industries alone. And China does almost 12 billion tons wow. of that, with USA being second at five and a half, so wow. half of China. Holy crap, guys. Deforest, deforestization. Deforestization. Yeah, I can say that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can just say deforestation. How about reforestation? Yeah, let's do reforestation. Deforestation is a main contributor to climate change. It's the second largest human source of CO2 emissions after fossil fuels. Mm. Emissions from uh, deforestation are they're somewhat indirect because it mainly results in reducing the absorption level of the trees that have been cut down. Yeah. So they won't be able to absorb. Exactly. They don't pull the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere anymore. Which means less oxygen, which isn't good. It accounts for about 10 to 15% of CO2 emissions globally. That used to be closer to 20%. The difference is we haven't reduced deforestation we yeah. increased the amount of other fossil fuels that we've burned, so the percentage of deforestation impact is decreasing because we're emitting more gases from other sources. And that's, again, kind of reflective of population. The reason that happens is because of demand of the people needing to deforestize these things for their, their needs. Yeah, deforestation is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than all of the world's cars, trucks, or planes, and ships combined in a year. And it emits more CO2 than all EU countries combined. Wow. So the entire European Union. Wow. All of our forests in the world have over a trillion tons of the world's carbon stored in them. Wow. 
And this is one of the problems with wildfires is when we have these huge wildfires with these extreme droughts. Sure. Is that when those trees burn, they're releasing all of their carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah. It's a bad effect. I mean, already it, it just seems like the ideal situation is to just chill out for a little while, let it cool off. But we can't do that. I mean, the world go, goes on, you know? I mean, we have so many forces that exist, you know? It's, it's like... I'm making these gestures, folks, right now. You can't see, but, like, my mind is just Is your head just exploded? It's just exploding, and and the words, (laughs) you know, aren't coming out because it's clearly a problem. Let's keep getting some more of this data uh, about this problem so maybe we can put an equal sign at the end of it and say solved. One of my Army buddies lives in uh, Mexico now, and him and I had this. We were exchanging emails. (laughs) He went on a rant about the meat industry. Okay. And making fun of Democrats for wanting uh, people to cut down on how much meat that they would eat and because it's contributing to global warming and how stupid the Democrats were. He's one of those guys that it doesn't matter what the Democrats have done or ever did. It was all bad. He's completely binary. Oh, yeah. Okay. Everything the Republicans done have been good. Everything the Democrats have done have been bad. Too bad. So he started really going on a rant for a few days about the stupid Democrats wanting us to reduce the amount of meat that we consumed. It's a real thing that the livestock sector is responsible for almost 15% of all global greenhouse emissions. Oh, sure. Oh, it, yeah. It is, well, the methane you were just saying, too. Yeah, with like, the cows. Yeah. Well, how do cows emit methane? Fucked. There you go. (laughs) Again, this is another example that the livestock industry produces more greenhouse gas emissions than the transportation industry, than all cars, planes, trains, and ships combined. The cause of the CO2 emissions is basically from the producing and processing of the feed for the livestock and methane from farts. Yeah. Methane is only, it's only around 18% of the greenhouse gas emissions that we put into the atmosphere. Still a but lot. But it's, it's still a lot, and it's more powerful as than, a greenhouse, with greenhouse warming potential than carbon dioxide. Yeah, wow. So it has a more significant impact on the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. It, it's estimated that every four pounds of meat that you eat is equivalent to getting on an airplane and flying from New York to London. Wow. <laughs> For your, like, carbon footprint. For your carbon footprint, right. right. Wow. So eating four pounds of meat emits as much GHGs into the atmosphere as an airliner flying from New York to London. That's luxury, folks. Definitely. Mm. Remember when we talked about the the permafrost and you said that's the that comes out of the ground? (laughs) (laughs) The the Arctic permafrost, uh, so for those of you that missed that episode, there are a lot of plant remains from the last ice age that are still under ice in northern Canada near the Arctic Circle. And there's a lot. It's <laughs> estimated that the permafrost soil holds around 1.6 trillion tons of CO2. That is around 40 years worth of our own human-contributed CO2 emissions yeah. into the atmosphere each year. So a bunch of, bunch of so somebody, you, you ever had a friend that, you know, like, captured a fart in their, um, in like a jar? <laughs> a fart in a jar. Don't yeah, talk a fart in a about jar. it. Yeah, you know, because you can do that. You just capture a little fart in a jar, and then you save it for later, and you open it up on your friend's face, and you're like, aha! <laughs> well, the planet's been doing that for us, and it's been saving up. 
<laughs> it's been accumulating. And, and this goes back to similar, the, the, where we talked about the Earth's albedo and the, and the temperature of the Earth's oceans and the melting of the ice. So as the permafrost, as global temperatures are increasing, the permafrost at its southern points are starting to thaw. As the permafrost thaws, it exposes the plants underneath, which begin to decay. And when they decay, they release their carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Wow. That contributes more greenhouse gases, which leads to a very slight increase in our average temperature, which causes more permafrost to melt, which causes more plants to decay and bad things happen. Dude. Oh, boy. <sighs> okay, so um, would you, ha- you have some notes here that I see you going through. Do you have more contributing factors to... Um, there are other contributing factors. The, warming, those, the global warming? Those are the, those are the primary contributors, are the carbon dioxide, the methane. The, there are others, the fluorocarbons, ozone, ni- nitrous oxide, concrete, yeah. yes. Especially the concrete process, a manufacturing process. All right, so how do we get to problem solving? How do we, how do we fix this mess? Okay, the, the first thing that we need to do on problem solving for global warming is we have to start educating people and getting a consensus. And I think the first thing that we have to understand is that climatologists don't have an ulterior motive in convincing people that global warming is a real issue. They don't profit by getting more people to believe their story. Right. It's not the fundamental way that they work. There, there's, there's no effect of that. Conversely, you have the energy and the oil and gas industries, which between the two have lobbied and contributed more than $4 billion to U.S. politicians in the last two decades. Man, imagine where else that money could have gone. And the reason that they've done that is because they do have an ulterior motive in convincing people that global warming is not influenced by man. They want people to burn oil. They want people to burn coal. That's what makes them rich. That's what keeps their employees employed. That's what keeps the coal miners working in Virginia. It's why when Trump was running for office in 2016, he stood in the West Virginia coal mines and said he was going to, you know, beautiful, beautiful, clean coal. We're going to make sure we keep producing and keep burning coal. And they just kept believing them because it was within their, it is in their self-interest. So we have to look at it at a micro and a macro level. So at the micro level, you think about a, you know, Virginia coal miner who's got a wife and two kids and he works all day in the mine and that's what puts food on the table and that's the only thing he knows how to do. There's no other jobs in the area Sounds and that's, that's his livelihood. It, that is what he is concerned about. Yeah, he totally. wants people to keep burning coal because that allows him to sustain his life yeah. and to provide for his family. Yep. There has to be, one, an educational process that people understand that this is real. You know, stop believing the, the politicized BS that comes out from politicians and from industries that have ulterior motives in convincing you of one way. That's where the passion comes from, too, where it's just like, don't listen to it. Like, don't be a fool. (laughs) But we also, as a culture, need to provide a safety net for those that would be negatively impacted by converting to energy sources that that created clean energy and didn't contribute to greenhouse gases. Yeah, because that's a pulling the the rug out 
from underneath them. And I don't, and we don't want to do that. I don't want coal miners' families to suffer, no. and I don't want individuals that work in oil refineries to suffer. We have to find alternative methods to take care of those people, and I don't know I, what it is. I, I, I believe it's possible. It is possible. That, so th- there's several challenges. I mean, besides, besides that, it's in, in the education process, as we said at the very beginning, it is a very complex situation. It's a very complex process, and it's difficult to get people to understand. Sure. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of this information about global warming and climate change, lots of different variables. And then, yeah, now we're talking on top of it how to educate people. I mean, it's another variable. People hear the term global warming they automatically expect that the planet is getting warmer everywhere. But that's not how it works. Global warming leads to climate change, and climate change might result in some areas of the Earth actually being colder. Mm. But the average temperature of the planet is increasing. Mm -hmm. Some places are getting much hotter. Other places are getting slightly cooler or staying the same. But the net sum effect is that the planet is heating up. I see. There, there's a difference between climate change and weather. Yeah. You know, weather is what happens on a day-to-day basis. Okay. And that changes. I mean, we, Every moment. <laughs> especially here in Texas. Uh, we, were, we had a 100% chance of rain the other day, and everybody was excited, and it blew right through, and we didn't get a drop of rain. Nothing. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's weather. Mm. Climate change is a long-term trend. I showed you that it was a uh, an animated chart that showed the average temperature of the planet yeah, was, by month from yeah. 1850 to 2019. That was a great chart. Or 2022, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, it 2021. Does, and you can have that visual reference and you can see how it, I mean, the data is right there. It's clearly going up. Yeah, gradually increasing every year for the past 170 years. Yeah, since the Industrial Revolution. And really. the fact that over that period of time, 20 of the 22 hottest years on record were in the last 20. No, 20, the 20 hottest years on record were in the last 22 years. You know, we have to see that, we have to accept it, and we have to create safety nets for the, for the people that would be impacted, it's negatively wild. It's impacted. Wild. When you do look at the graphs, like you can see 1850 is like, like right where the first little increase of stuff starts to happen. Like every all the time before that, you know, it's, we're, the graphs are kind of cruising at, at this nice, you know, low level cruise. And then 1850 happens and then like, oh, a little blip, you know, things are starting to happen here and starting to go up. And it kind of it kind of like doubles until about 1950. And it is true what they say. That was like the good old days. But it was good old days not for reasons why people think it was. Not because of the racism and because of the white supremacy and because of all that. But because the population was kind of low and manageable. Technology and intelligence was really starting to boon. And we really were kind of understanding things. And then from like 1950 on, it just goes crazy. It doubles and then triples and then quadruples and then boom, 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 boom. The population's way up. All the carbon emissions are just through the roof. And everything, quite frankly, on paper, looks like it's gone to total sh**. Um, I'm going to get my numbers wrong. So in 1950, the population was around 2.5 billion. Okay. Uh, Today, at the end of this year, we're projected to hit 8 billion. So increased by 5.5 billion in 70 years. 1958 was the first year that we measured in the, in the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii 
um, atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. And we're around, I think it was around 350, 370, somewhere in that range. And today we're at 418. Wow. So the population has increased, carbon dioxide levels have increased. It, it continues to go. And it's, the problem also we mentioned earlier is the inherent nature of science. Scientists are poor communicators. They tend to do things in empirical data and matter-of-fact manners. And scientists, science has progressed over thousands of years by constantly contradicting each other and testing hypotheses and coming up with theories and hypotheses and then reaching, um, reaching I'm sorry, reaching a consensus and then somebody five years later challenging that consensus, and then we find out that guy's right, and the other guys have been wrong, and we've made another leap forward. It's actual building blocks. That's how we have progressed. And people see that, and they say, oh, well, the scientist was wrong about you know, what they said 10 years ago, so it's all... But no, that's how we have progressed. If, we hadn't, if, if scientists hadn't operated that in that manner for the last several hundred years, we wouldn't be in cars, we wouldn't be watching television, we wouldn't have lights in our house, it's, yeah. uh, we wouldn't have the medicine we do today. That's exactly how we've gotten to where we are today, and they're doing the exact same thing climatologists are with the environment, yeah, and with you know global warming and climate change, and it's gonna happen, but people see that and they use that as a source for convincing themselves and for others that it's all a hoax. Yeah, now I do wanna say, I don't think that Thanos was right. Okay, does that make sense to anybody? Yeah, we agree. I like the way you backpedal there. You know, just because it's like we're pointing towards, you know, population being an issue and all this stuff does not mean that you should go drown your kids or, you know, start offing people like like Thanos. Yeah, please don't. Yeah, no, that's not, that's like, that's not the solution. That's a knee-jerk reaction but there are things that can definitely be done to course us into a better future. And or I, better now, you know, but in the future. And there, there are a lot of standard, typical arguments out there from climate deniers. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those is what we discussed. We sometimes have very cold winters, so global, global warming can't be real. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. The average temperature of the Earth is increasing steadily, and it has been for the last couple hundred years. Can I say something? Yeah. Sure. So, for example, the desert, how it's super, super hot during the day, and it gets freezing, freezing cold at night. Yeah. It has an example with what you were saying, sort of. And, and well, there's a little bit of that, too. But also in the desert, deserts tend to be very dry, so there's not a lot of water vapor in the air, and water vapor holds a lot of heat. So that's why in humid areas it stays hotter later at night. And, and we'll get to a couple. Yeah, hey, that's uh, a good point. Yeah. Uh-oh. Oh, oh did, God. Did that just start from zero? <laughs> it started from zero, but it'll... Stop it. No, it'll give me another audio file. Oh, it's another one? Yeah. Oh, it's not recording over it. No, okay, it won't good. record over it. It'll it'll generate a new audio file. Okay, that's good. Otherwise, we'll do this again in a couple weekends, and uh, <laughs> we'll be real experts on this subject. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, guys. We've, we've had a few technical glitches here that we... Think yeah. that we've overcome? We'll find out. Yeah, we were just talking for about maybe a half an hour about some stuff, and... Well, it wasn't recording, so... Um, that sucks. You know, yeah, awesome Joshy. He uh, discovered it with his eyes that can see. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'll go through. We got. It looks like we have our equipment sorted out and things are functioning again. So I, th I think 
we'll just skip ahead. We've covered a lot of the topics, and I think we've been redundant in a couple areas. But we'll go through uh, briefly some of the typical arguments by climate deniers. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. how wouldn't it be real? Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, to, to how it wouldn't be real, some people will also argue that climate change is natural and normal, that climate change does happen, but it's been happening throughout the history of the planet, and it you know, man is not contributing to that effect. To the first part of that, they're correct. You know, over hundreds of millions of years, there have been many points where the average temperature of the planet is much warmer than it is today. Over the past 400 million years, however, as forests have started to spread over the continents and more carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases and volcanic activity is reduced until the point of the last 800,000 years where the CO2 levels were between 180 and 300 parts per million. What we've seen in the last 180 years are dramatic changes in the rate at which carbon emissions are entering the atmosphere, the temperature is increasing, in levels that we haven't seen in hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Yeah, since what was the name of that phenomenon again? The Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. I can't even repeat that. Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, the PETM. Okay, I'm, wow. I'm, just, I'm just not going to try. Yeah, and that's when it was the most poisonous. Well, that was the hottest temperature in the planet in the last 66 million years. Yeah, and it was dumping out... 1.1 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. Yeah, whoa. Well, Humans are doing 40 to 45 billion every year today. My God. Yeah, that's a lot more than yeah, back it, then. It's a humanocene. And it's not just that, it's the rate of change. It took the planet tens of thousands of years for it to reach that maximum temperature that was the hottest point in the last 66 million years. Yeah. We're seeing rates over the last 200 years that are far faster, you know, thousands of times faster than what was seen back 56 million years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's such a concern. The other one that we (laughs) discussed off air, that there was no consensus among scientists that climate change is real. That's another argument that climate deniers make. Yeah, no, that's that's just not real. It's blatantly false. Yeah. And it's 97% of active climate scientists all all agree that humans are causing climate change and global warming. My point to that is, you can't get 100 experts in a room and get 97% agreement on pretty much anything yeah, that's in their field of, of study. Yeah, that's one hell of peer review right there. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's completely wrong to say that there's no consensus among climate scientists that humans are contributing or causing global warming and, and climate change. Yeah, I'll, I'll call that ignorance denialism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is the uh, administration um, obviously responsible for monitoring ocean activities, atmospheric levels. They get involved in quite a lot of other things as well. Yeah. And they, they have a dashboard that they've been keeping track of for the last several decades. From between 1901 and 2020, they've reported around a 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit change in temperature of the ocean uh, of the global average temperature oh just the global okay. the global average temperature now sea level rise however you know, for the first well, pretty much all of the 20th century sea levels were rising at a rate of around 1.7 millimeters per year since 1993 that's nearly doubled to 3.2 millimeters per year which hmm. means 
uh, polar caps, and, and mostly like Antarctic, Greenland, ice that exists on uh, land masses that are melting is pouring into the oceans and causing sea level rise. Now, during the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, there were no polar caps. I think we mentioned this earlier in the yeah. episode. Yeah, I think uh, so. All the, all the ice uh, was melted, and, and sea levels were 230 feet higher than they are today. It's quite the difference. Wasn't, wait, were like most of the land like underwater? Yeah, do you guys remember Waterworld? Yeah, Waterworld was a bit of a, was one of those in the, in the, you know, the day after tomorrow kind of movies yeah, where you know, if, if all of the ice masses and, you know, the polar caps of all ice on Earth melted today, water wouldn't rise to the levels that were portrayed in Waterworld. Gotcha. <laughs> However, if, the sea levels rose 230 feet today. Around 3 billion people live within 100 miles of coasts around the world. Oh, my. Yeah. And all of them would be impacted. And you would see significant changes in landmass. Countries with the Netherlands, Denmark, um, Florida, a lot of the eastern coast states would be completely submerged and underwater. But it wouldn't be you know, the entire continents. Because yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of landmass that's higher than 230 feet above sea level. But I think I drove through Denmark, and one of the guys I was with, he was one of my Danish colleagues. He pointed out an area that had the highest altitude, highest point of altitude in Denmark when we were there, and I think it was over 500 feet. Okay. Which means pretty much the entire country of Denmark would yeah. be underwater. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, New Orleans, parts of you know the southern coast. It, it we'd have to make a bunch of new globes. Yeah, well, hopefully not. Um, God, I'm just trying to remember because that half an hour that's gone. Um, so it's not all gloom and doom. I don't know if we're being redundant uh, right now or not. It's not all gloom and doom, and yeah. I want to get to I want to get to some of the positive things that we're seeing with regard to climate change and how how we're combating it. And you know, we're finally seeing some positive trends. The, the real concern is the rate at which we can influence the change in society. Like, is it even possible? Yeah, how fast, how fast can we change gears on what we're doing today yeah. to incorporate clean energy sources and reduce fossil fuel consumption? Yeah. And Things like electric cars and wind-powered... Solar you know, and wind. Solar, and, yeah. it, right. Yeah, get rid of coal. Yeah, it's where, you, where people wouldn't even have to be inconvenienced. You could still drive around in your car. You could still use AC, you know, still do all these things. But it's just it just looks a little different. Instead of it being coal, it's now nuclear. and Or solar, or solar wind, or wind or something. Yeah. hydroelectric. It's something. Yeah. Yeah, that, not necessarily nuclear right away, although that is a potential. Yeah, I mean, we... I don't want to get into. I, I do have a page of doom and gloom scenarios. Yeah, and they're doomish and gloomish. Yeah, well, hey, and, look, let's get through the bad stuff and then end on a high note. Yeah, you know, I think we can summarize the bad stuff with with saying that you know, as climate changes, you know, there's a lot of things. You know, besides sea level rise, cities going underwater, uh, people, you know, billions of people being displaced. There's you know, food, sh food shortages because crops and livestock are being stressed because of longer droughts and extreme weather conditions. Uh, water supplies are becoming limited because 
a lot of the areas and a lot of the farmers rely on the snowpacks in the wintertime that form up on the mountains and then they melt in the springtime and the water comes down and they use that water for their crops and their livestock. But in some areas, they're not getting nearly as much snow uh, and the snowpacks. Yeah. So there's not enough water that comes down. And, and the, the droughts, the you know, uh, precipitation patterns and rainfall is changing uh, in a lot of these regions. So water is becoming in short supply as well in many areas. Now, at the same time, other areas are seeing extreme weather conditions with much heavier rainfall. It may not be in an agricultural area. So it's, yeah. you know, it has a negative effect. I saw an interesting thing where, and this isn't a doom and gloom scenario, but I, I found it interesting. France, they're very proud of the wine that they produce in that country. Oh, yeah. And there's very little that's done in the United Kingdom that France would praise. You know, the French <laughs> and the British have a long history. Uh, they still don't like each other very much. A lot of the people, a lot of the companies, the wine, the producers of wine in France are starting to eye land in the UK. Mm. Because the climate is changing so much, it's getting warmer in France, but it's also getting warmer in the UK to the point to where the temperature there might be more ideal. Yeah, for what they're up for to. For what they're up to. The same thing is uh, with the Sonoma Valley and Napa Valley in California. They're starting to buy up land in Oregon and Washington. Wow. So that they can start moving some of their, uh, their, their, their things. crops up there. Yeah, wow. Smart moves. Let's go through some of the good news. Yeah, it's yeah. been a lot of doom and gloom yeah, on yeah. climate change, and <laughs> and you know the frustration with you know the climate deniers is you know we got to break through, got to find a way to penetrate that mental block that they've put up against you know nothing can be done or you know get them past their political ideology and or even uh, religious ones. You know, I mean, don't pray you know for someone else to do this work. You know, we have to do the work. On the religious side, it's a little bit more frustrating because we had this conversation with someone who said that they really weren't concerned about climate change because we were living in the last generation. And it just makes you want to bang your head on the wall because they'll go out and do whatever they want because God's coming in the next decade and it's, it's all over anyway. We can make that a self-fulfilling prophecy if we want. That's what it, it sounds like good. to me. It's like, yeah, it, it, yeah, you sound like a person behind the wheel that's like, drunk and your wife is in the passenger seat just being like please pull over and you're like i can't i can't do it god won't let me and then you're all dead and, uh, you totally could have but <laughs> good news on climate change let's get positive yeah the more pe more and more people every year are demanding that governments take action on climate change we're seeing an increase uh, globally yeah. Especially as the temperatures get hotter, weather patterns get more severe, you know, people are finally starting to stand up and take notice. Coal is still the largest contributor to CO2 emissions in the world, but its use continues to decline and may eventually disappear in the European Union, and it's also declining in the United States. Oh. The concern is, is that China and India and other countries are continuing to increase their usage, and that's having a negative impact on our attempt to diminish or our attempt to reduce the global use of coal. Yeah. The International Energy Agency estimates that global capacity of renewable energy will rise by more than 60% within this decade. Hmm. That's good. That's a very positive very thing. Very good. Electrical vehicle sales continue to, arise, to rise, and I believe it was just last year that it hit 5% of all new car sales. Oh, wow. And now that doesn't sound like a lot, a lot 
but 5% is a significant benchmark because that's that tends to be at a point where a product n- is no longer considered kind of a niche, mm-hmm. new, bad thingy. Yeah. And it starts to gain market, market popularity and increase. It's already established. Yeah, I mean, I got my eyes on the Tesla. They estimate that electric vehicles work, will account for 30% of all new vehicle sales by 2030. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting one. So in May of 2022, there's a company called Goodmeat. They announced that it signed a contract to build the world's largest bioreactors to produce cultivated meat. Hmm. They do this by using animal cells collected from eggs or cell banks. So they raise the product. They basically just create the meat. They don't have to create a live animal. Are we talking about Impossible Burgers here? No, 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 no. These, this is meat. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not the vegetarian thing type of thing. It is it is the meat from an animal, but they they basically reproduce they the cells. It. They They reproduce the cells yeah. that are in the meat. The meat I, is, I think that is what the Impossible Burger is. Is it something like that? It's like it's not veggie stuff. It's a synthesized meat. Is it? Yeah, I think. Okay, so. I could be wrong there because I had one and I got an Impossible sausage something the other day and it was all veggie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the thing I'm thinking of. Is it's meat that's synthesized. It sounds like this. Yeah, yeah. I've eaten it. I'm still alive. Boom. <laughs> no animals are raised and slaughtered, so it's more of an ethical process, and it significantly reduces uh, carbon and methane emissions. Nice. The EU had set a target for last year to reduce carbon emissions by 20% of their 1990 levels. Mm -hmm. They actually hit 34%. Oh, wow. The Biden administration is working towards 100% clean energy production, which could be achievable in the next 15 years. Boom. With a little bit of political cooperation. Yeah, that's one of these things. I don't know if this got deleted from uh, the the deleted thing or if it's being redundant, but here you go again. you know, I, I travel around and I see all these little stickers on my on the gas pumps. You know, and these little stickers. They got a picture of Joe Biden. You know, and he's like pointing at the gas sticker and says, "This is what I did," or something. Yeah, see I increased the prices. Just like, oh my god! But I've been paying attention. It's like I haven't seen it coming, or it's not that I haven't seen it coming. These initiatives that we're talking about. It's like, how do you think the government is going to reduce the emissions? You know, they're going to hit people in their wallets. That's that's where they're going to do it. You know, if you if you can't do it responsibly, well, Big Brother's going to come in and do it for you um, is what it always comes down to. You know, if you don't like the government, well, start having some more personal accountability. How about that? Gas prices are a little bit different. One of the reasons that so where Joe Biden is responsible for gas prices is that his administration actually increased demand. Mm-hmm. So with vaccinations, the re, you know, elimination of uh, some of the COVID restrictions, more people out in the market, increased consumers on the road, which increased the demand for fuel. A couple years back, right before Trump left office, he was alarmed at gas prices being so low. And this is right at the early stages of COVID. We moved to Texas in May of 2020, and it was $1.49 a gallon. Mm-hmm. He was alarmed about that. He worked out a deal and pressured OPEC to cut their production in half. As a result of that, oil production was reduced by 50% for two years. So we're still in that range. Right. During that time, the Biden administration increased demand. You have a low supply. You have high demand. Prices go through the roof. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons gas prices are so high. Now, simultaneously, did that help the carbon CO2 output at all? So there, 
Yes, there have been several instances throughout the known history over the last several hundred years where carbon emissions have temporarily dipped. Mm -hmm. One of those was the Great Depression. One of those was the end of World War II. Another one of those was the fall of the Soviet Union, where a lot of countries started to demilitarize. And then COVID, Mm -hmm. when everybody locked down and people stopped flying and people start driving, we saw another dip. The problem is, is it's resumed back to prior levels and the trend has continued to increase in every single one of those instances. Of course. Yeah. So it needs to reduce and flatten out. And it's not, we're back up to the trends prior to COVID uh, hitting. So it's like a, you know, a very short momentary momentary delay before we start burning fossil fuels again in the same levels. It's almost just another little blip on the graph just to prove like, yep, it's accurate data. An interesting one is the Pentagon is testing floating solar panels to use on lakes. Oh, cool. And they want to use these on large lakes near military bases where they can provide electricity to completely power the military base and the surrounding areas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, that's kind of one of these things that is so simple. Solar panels, you know, right, exist. Where I come from uh, in Tucson, Arizona, Arizona in general, it makes no flipping sense to me whatsoever why, how the infrastructure works in that entire state. Constant sun all the time. Some of the fewest solar panel fields I've ever seen. And a thing that's even more infuriating for me is there's parking lots upon parking lots upon parking lots and all these things that get developed and they shave off all of the trees and in, in, in the air in the area they move the saguaros they do whatever they do and they just build parking lots and buildings but the problem is there's no shade whatsoever it's just open black greenhouse gas making freaking or green greenhouse not even gas but greenhouse solid making turf with no shade whatsoever and if you just put some shade over that one right there you're gonna you're gonna be stopping a lot of the heat that's getting greenhouse bricked not even by the gases but by the actual asphalt that's right there put some shade on that and then if you want to really do some extra credit work put some solar panels on that shade it hasn't been done yet the time is now and it's just so crazy because like there's lobbyists out there that are trying to like stop it for some reason and there's just there's just so much BS that you'll roll your eyes to even my mouth opening. You won't listen to it. But yeah, put some freaking shade over 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 the asphalt parking lot. And then when you do that, put some freaking solar panels on that. And then you, you support your whole business with just the electricity, you know, not your whole business, but all your electrical needs right there done on the solar panels. Anyway, sorry, I kind of like went on a little tirade there. You were saying some more hopeful things, but that's a hopeful thing we can do. We can do that. People don't do that for whatever reason, but we can do it. So, <laughs> just place solar panels. Just, just give us some shade. You know, put put some sh- some solar panels on that. A friend of mine wants to turn every Walmart parking lot into a covered parking lot with solar panels, and electric vehicles get to charge for free, and the solar panels could be used to power the Walmart. Boom! <laughs> right there. I mean, it's all like. Holy crap, stop with all the waste and actually use all the potential that's around us. It's incredible. So there's there, go ahead. It's a perfect idea. Just do that. Just do that. Or yeah. would be better. Well, there's also you know, one of the complaints against renewable energy, solar panels, wind is that it's expensive. But 
one thing that people don't realize is that the government provides more subsidies to the oil and gas industry to keep the price low than they do to the renewable energies. Yeah, so if you so we need to make it an f- even sh- playing field. Shift that, then yeah, right. it would be affordable. <laughs> right. But there's, there's a Swiss company called Climaworks, which placed the first climate carbon scrubber in Iceland uh, back um, in 2021, so last year. Nice. And it's small. It only pulls about 4,000 tons of carbon out of the atmosphere a year which is nothing compared to the 45 billion that humans contribute of carbon dioxide today. Yeah. But they just signed a project to install the second one in two years, which will be 36,000 tons a year. So between the two, it'll be 40,000 tons. Still, wow. it's insignificant, but it's starting that trend. It's starting, yeah. Their goal is by 2050 to be able to have scrubbers that'll pull a billion tons out a year. That's great. And we need more companies doing that. Now, the downside to that is some people see if there are systems that are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, it reduces the incentive to stop burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Why do it? We can pull them out of the atmosphere. Yeah. I just want to touch on one more thing, and this kind of goes back to depoliticizing climate change and and the need to do that. No kidding. So these are all polls that were done in the last roughly five to six years. One of them is, do you think that climate change is an emergency or not? So 56% of the, this is like 2016, 56% of the country said it's an emergency. 84% 84% of those were Democrats, 63% were independents, only 18% are Republicans. Mm. So you see the political slant on that. Yeah. And there were a couple others that were even scarier. Do you think Donald Trump should remove specific regulations intended to combat climate change? You know, a majority of Republicans said that he should. Everybody else was, you know, 8% for Democrats, 24% for independents. Yeah. This one, we. Do you think the United States should encourage the use of coal or should discourage the use of coal? 36% of the country thought that Trump should encourage, the government should encourage the use of coal. Yeah. 70% of Republicans said that, yet they should encourage, Mm. compared to 14% of Democrats and 35% of independents. And do you think that significantly cutting funding for scientific research on the environment and climate change is a good idea? 50% 50% of Republicans said it is a good idea compared to 7% of Democrats and 24% of independents. Yeah. And do you think climate change is a hoax? 43% of Republicans back in 2017 still thought it was a hoax. So this is where we need to get out of the political politicization of climate change and realize that this is a problem that goes way past politics. Absolutely. I'll, get, I'll, I'll shed some personal hope here. Um, my dad, who is or was uh, an avid Donald Trump supporter, voted for him, loved him. We argued about it a lot. He has come out and said to me um, a number of times that he is a born-again environmentalist. I love to hear that, yeah. Yeah, which is <laughs> yeah and he, he has his own garden now, still learning, but it, it, it's possible. Um, now, there is a difference between being an environmentalist and being um, a proponent of doing something about global warming, because environment— Trump has even said this before. He's like, hey, I'm a great environmentalist. I want clean water. I want, you know, the cleanest water. I want the cleanest water everywhere. Interesting. But that has nothing to do with global warming and climate change. Interesting. Yeah, I got to check him. I got to be like, wait a minute. Are you being sarcastic here? Yeah. So you have to to follow on that. There's still some challenges. 
in the last Congress, 139 Republican representatives in Congress. So 109 representatives and 30 senators are still active climate deniers. Wow. And these, these things are hap- that, uh, that we have to change and get past. And they're climate deniers probably because they're told to be climate deniers. Well, you know? those 139 climate-denying members have received more than $61 million in lifetime contributions from the coal, oil, and gas industries. Oh, well, well, they don't have any influence over their thoughts. A lot of Republicans, however, are slowly starting to change their positions, especially in the faces of the extreme droughts and heat waves that are coming in. Uh, but their acceptance has not translated into support for reducing the burning of fossil fuels. Instead, most of them want to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars to cope with the results of global warming. Basically, they want to treat the symptom, not the cause. Yeah. Wow. The symptoms, I should say, because there's multiple. <clears throat> um, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, he said, I am not doing anything to raise the cost of living for American families in He's in Florida, where climate fuel disasters have cost the state more than $100 billion over the past decade. Wow. He's also in a state where if temperature levels reach 3 degrees sea rise, right now they're at 1.8, sea levels will rise to the point to where Miami and Fort Lauderdale will be completely underwater, and so will the lower third part of Florida. Wow. It's around 7 to 10 million people live in that area. And, and instead of doing something about spending money on climate change, he wants to spend tens of hundreds of billions of dollars on treating the symptoms of it. That's so crazy. Instead of just stopping what you're doing, you'd rather continue to pay for the consequences, even though they're not going to pay for it. It's going to But be- that, you, <laughs> you take, see, that's where people have come out with studies that said if we focused on infrastructure to combat climate change, it's going to cost trillions of dollars. What? the same people pushing that don't say is how much less money would need to be spent on treating the symptoms of global warming and climate change. Sure. So it'd be significantly less than that. It'd be a fraction of that. Yeah. If we just did that and the end result would be cheaper energy, cleaner air, less drought, more stable food supplies. I thought these people were supposed to be quote unquote conservative, you know, to be conserving things, not wasting things. Here's conservative Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. He helped recently craft a $1 trillion infrastructure package that passed the Senate, and he made sure to include billions of dollars to protect coastal states from sea level rise caused by climate change. However, in the same breath, he said he wouldn't support policies to curb the amount of oil that is drilled off the Louisiana coast. That's his state. Ah. We cannot live without fossil fuels or chemicals, period. End of story, he said, who wants to expand the exports of liquefied natural gas. Now, the nice thing about natural gas is that it emits about half of the carbon dioxide of coal, but it is a source of methane, which is 28 Mm -hmm. times more powerful than than carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, he's, he's another Republican. He agreed that climate change is driving the extreme drought that has devastated crops and decimated livestock in his own state. He said that the gases produced by burning fossil fuels, however, should be the target, not the fuels themselves. We need to be an anti-carbon on an anti-carbon mission, not an anti-fuel mission. He happens to be that his state is one of the top oil and gas producers in the country. There we go. Yeah. Senator Marco Rubio he's a Florida Republican, said it made no sense for the United States to cut its emissions while other countries like China continued to pollute. 
At the same time, he rejected trade policies that would apply pressure on China and others to curb their emissions. Hmm. Yeah. And aren't we supposed to be the leaders by setting an example? No. We've forgotten how to do that. Mm. We, we've forgotten in the last 10 years, and we've forgotten in the last six years, I should say, on how to lead by example. I think there's we're trying to make changes. January 6th didn't help with our influence in the world as a world leader. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot to recover from. We do. Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma, I remember back in 2015, he showed up in the Senate with a big snowball that he got from his state at a time when the temperatures are normally warmer, but it was so cold that they had snow and he made a big snowball. And he brings it into the Senate and he throws it on the floor and says, this is what I think about global warming, not understanding the difference between global warming and climate change. Again, some areas get colder, you have crazy weather weather patterns. He insisted in the last few months that he never ever called climate change a hoax only that the dire consequences have been overblown. So he went and threw a snowball on the Senate floor, said, this is what I think of global warming. This dramatic gesture. Now, now he says, I never called it a hoax, only that we're overblowing the, the threat of it. But he was also the author of a book that was entitled The Greatest Hoax, How the Global Warming Conspiracy Threatens Your Future. All right, there you go, guys. Stop listening to this right now. <laughs> like, seriously, because if you believe any of his sucker (laughs) it it, it is absolutely insane i will say trump you know uh, again was it troy boy troy boy i'm bashing trump now okay Uh, and i i don't apologize so there was a climate deregulation tracker uh that's run by the saban center for climate change uh, has documented more than 130 steps that the trump administration took to scale back measures that were implemented to fight climate change One of those was asinine. He tried to eliminate some of the regulations that we had on and fuel emissions on cars and efficiency. Yeah. California went above and beyond and even set more strict standards. He went after California to try to force the state to not set more strict standards for the its own state's citizens on fuel emissions. I'm so confused. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, now there's a a couple positive things on this. I've, I've told my children several times. Yeah, this is their future. It's time that our younger generation take over, take the steering wheel, kick all these old people out of Congress and out of the White House, start putting in people from their generations and assume responsibility for the country that we are no longer capable of running. It's, you know, our our goal as parents is to, you know, prepare our kids to take over the world one day. This is, you know, it's their... This is the time for the next generation. And a Pew survey last year found that 52% of young Republicans felt that the government was doing too little to reduce the effect of climate change. Now, that's at a higher rate than what it's still too low, but it's at a far higher rate than what Republicans in the most recent polls have said with regard to their uh, lackadaisical attitude towards climate change. So if I understand it, some of the younger Republicans are coming up. These are the younger Republicans. Right. Yeah. Um, A Monmouth University poll uh, found that almost two-thirds of Republicans now believe in climate change, which is a 15% increase from just three years ago. That's awesome. And a survey commissioned by the American Conservative Coalitions found that 67% of millennial Republican voters believe that the party should do more on climate change. That's great. We're making that trend, and those are the positive aspects. My concern is, can we do it fast enough? Mm Mm-hmm. We have to. 
It's our future. It's the future of the planet. I mean, again, you just point to if you live in southern Florida, if the temperature of the oceans continue to increase at the rate that they've increased since 1993, and we're already seeing the city of Miami putting forth hundreds of millions and billions of dollars worth of projects to try to reinforce their sea walls and and, uh, water removal systems because it's going underwater slowly. And Miami Beach could be gone in 10 years or less. Yeah, so we got to do something. Or, you know, just close your eyes and pray it away. (laughs) No, just kidding, guys. Check out that movie, Don't Look Up. Actually, don't check it out. If you want to see the charts that Chris and I referenced at the beginning that give you a visual representation of the human population compared to human fuel con- fossil fuel consumption compared to atmospheric uh, CO2 concentration levels, um, yeah, you can see it on our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. And if you have any questions, comments, uh, want more information, or you just want to dispute some of the facts that uh, we've we've mentioned here? Please on our, on our website, just yeah, click on out. the contact us and reach out, and either Chris or I will uh, will respond. Yeah, and these graphs are they're they're great. Um, they got a lot of information that makes a lot of what we just talked about very clear. Joshi, yes. Any thoughts? Um, grow garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good thought. And, you know, my concern, again, isn't for me. I'm, you know, I'm older. My concern is for Josh and, you know, his generation and what kind of planet are we leaving them. So, you know, please take the time, you know, have a look. Just be conscientious, conscientious, conscientious. I can't say it. Conscience. <laughs> conscientious. Yes, conscientious of, conscientious. Uh, you know, of, of your, you know, we're not asking you to stop driving a vehicle and turn your air conditioning on, you know, 88. It's you know, just be sensible. Yeah. Don't use too much. And, and again, uh, I'll pl- we don't receive money from this, but I'll plug it. Uh, ecosia.org. Ecosia. E-C-O-S-I-A dot O-R-G. It's like the new Google, but they plant trees for you. Good. And if you want to verify some of my sources, the ubiquitous, 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 I've I've been talking for a long time (laughs) at NASA.com. I love NASA's website. There's all kind of information there on, um, you know, just besides the the cool space stuff, uh, but also on climate change. Um, you can go to the, you know, NOAA.com you know, or NOAA.org. It's the you know, National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Administration. The Future of Life Institute, mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah. Uh, the WorldCounts.com, the Natural Resources Defense Council, OilPrice.com, oddly enough. Uh, the Rainforest Alliance and Harris Mann Climatology. So those are my sources for most of the material and along with the sources that you'll see on the charts that are on the website. Super cool. As always, my sources get pulled right out. <laughs> Amazing. The best place to get your sources. <laughs> <laughs> right out the dumpster. All right. With that, that's, uh, that's it. I love you guys. Love you, man. Go help plant some trees. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com, or you can contact us directly through our website at 
www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for and strive to give in return a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.